We are indeed needy people. If you are weak, if you are broken this morning, you have come to the right place. Never stay away when you are weak and broken. This is the place to be. Our first text this morning we're looking at, we'll be reading Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We will be reading the entire chapter. Hear what the word of the Lord says. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. <clears throat> and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and who stood on the sand of the sea. And our second and final text is found in Romans. Romans chapter 3, 
verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, thank you for your salvation. May we continue to see Jesus this morning. Amen. you'll keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to endeavor to get all the way through the chapter this morning. There's a lot here. Um, And one of the things that I want to um, make mention of before we get too far down the road is that if you remember back in chapter 1, matter of fact, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn back there just briefly. One of the things that uh, Jesus made known to John as he was getting ready to give him this revelation, was he said in verse 19 of chapter 1, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to to take place after this. Uh, So there's some stuff that's going on in this chapter that both looks back at already what's happened and what's going on now. And you have to kind of tap into the fact that there's several time zones happening all at the same time. Uh, and that'll be, that'll be clear as we work through this. Now, last time in chapter 11, uh, we called that the tale of two cities, uh, the city of God and the city of man. And the city of God uh, being a way of speaking about God's people as a citizenry which is under the authority and the rulership of Jesus, um, the church, if you will, and uh, a society that's established according to his values. And it is, in fact, being under his rulership that makes us citizens of this city. And that's in contrast to the city of this world. And again, uh, we, we looked at that in a lot of detail. There's four kind of foundational ideas in the city of this world that for most human beings, the concept of, of material well-being is a place where we live. We serve that concept and, and are given over to cultural morality as opposed to the Spirit's holiness. And uh, a man-made spirituality and religion, which is very common today, versus true worship that's given to us in the Scripture, and especially personal autonomy. We are in the age of personal autonomy versus submitting to the kingship of Jesus. So you have these these two worldviews, these two entire different concepts of human life side by side. 
So in contrast to that city, of the city of God, stands the city of this world. A citizenry of those who are opposed to Christ's rule. Now the average guy on the street is probably not conscious of opposing Christ's rule. Not necessarily thinking that way. But in in as much as we're committed to self-rulership, and the values that we create and adopt for ourselves, all of those are outside of Christ, and they, they make us to dwell in that city. So, uh, in fact, each one of us here today has to decide which one of these cities we're in. Where do we live? What are the things that really are foundational to us? And are we really part of the citizens of the city of God, or are we part of the city of this world? We rarely are going to have to wrestle with that idea. So these two cities are in perpetual conflict. And we saw that that conflict is spiritual. Uh, And we saw that especially teased out in 2 Corinthians 10, um, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We don't deal with this conflict in terms of um, personal combat. Something else has to go on here. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, but they're divine. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Uh, what does that look like? Well, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's where the believer is and that's part of how we engage in this. So ultimately, we see that the church's battle, our battle, isn't political, and it isn't economic, and it isn't even moral, although it has implications for all of those areas. So chapter 12 and chapter 13 go on to develop that pattern, I think, in a very uh, useful and interesting way by focusing on revealing to us the nature, the work and especially the motives of the great enemy who is behind the city of man, which is Satan, exposing him as the one behind that city as its chief influencer. And how that influence works is going to be unpacked a little bit this week, but a lot more as we get into chapter 13. So much is this true. Scripture can say, for instance, in 1 John, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What does that look like? What's meant by a phrase like that? That's what we're going to be unpacking this morning as we work through this. But because this is true, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that there is a a way of thinking that pervades those who are outside of Christ pervade in in us before we came to Christ and often encroaches even on the church, which is part of the warning of those letters to the seven churches at the beginning of this book. So true is this that Colossians 2.8 warns that we are to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to what? Human tradition. Mankind's approach to things moral and spiritual, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. That's the dichotomy. So it's something we've really got to be aware of. So chapter 12 is going to make abundantly clear 
the nature of Satan's involvement in this conflict and how God keeps his church through the conflict and gives her ultimate victory. So it's a very encouraging chapter, even though it's got some pretty interesting stuff to look at in the process. And so this chapter, chapter 11, or chapter 12, opens with two signs. If you look at that first verse, a great sign appeared in heaven. And then again, there's going to be that in verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Uh, The word sign there just means spectacles. These two things that are just amazing to behold, and in the process of beholding them, they're supposed to have an impact on some things that we need to understand. And through those two signs, we're chiefly meant to see two things. So I'm going to tell you where we're going before we get there. We'll start off by telling you where we, where we want to end up. And the first is that we want to see the savagery of Satan's involvement in this present world system. And I mean savagery. Uh, we'll, we'll unpack that especially more in, the, in uh, God willing, next week. And his thoughts and his reasoning and his purposes, what is it that Satan does? Does, he, does Satan live his life to give us flat tires, to aggravate us? Is he the, the equivalent of a gremlin from the Second World War, just you know, sitting on top of a bomb, tapping it with a hammer? Is, is, is he just an imp? Is he, is, is he a, a cosmic irritant or is something else going on? Scripture unpacks that for us. But then secondly what the provisions are that are made for believers so that the victory is ours and that it's ours in a very precise and practical and rational way. I'm going to come back to why that becomes so important before we're done. Um, but that's where we're going. That's, that's what we want to try and get to this morning. And then next time, as I said, God willing, we'll go on to chapter 13 where the text will explain more of the complexities and the realities of the battle, especially Satan's tactics, how he actually works what he does. And that'll help us understand what we can expect in our day and right up until the time that Jesus returns. So chapter 12 serves as kind of an introduction to chapter 13. It's got to move us along. Now, I'm going to approach this chapter a little differently than we did the last chapter because that was, that was technical. And so for clarity's sake, I'm going to try and back off the technical stuff and move to what's um, uh, a little easier to access. Uh, and, and I'm not going to tease out as much of the detail as I have the last couple of times. I want to get to how this passage, for instance, helps me personally and And by proxy, I hope, will help you as well. So let's look at the text itself and work through it. Um, This first thing, and a great sign, verses 1 and 2, appeared in heaven, a a spectacle. It's not a sign signifying something in the sense of a road sign as much as it is just a, a spectacle, something to catch the attention. And what caught John's attention at this moment? Well, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. What in the world is that? Um, And throughout history, there have been a number of different interpretations. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church says this is Mary, quite evidently Mary. 
I think the text is going to militate against that concept. Some have said this must just be Israel. Some have said this must be the church. I think we're going to find that there may be uh, something of a, of a mixture there. We'll go through it. But the way we do that is to look at the facts. What, what are the things that are presented to us in the passage that help us figure out who this woman is and what's going on? And I think there's 12 key facts. We're going to run through them very quickly. Some need unpacked more than others. Some I'm going to run over rather rapidly. And some are pretty self-explanatory. So the first thing that we notice in the text is that she is clothed with the sun. Uh, It would be pretty easy to see how this idea was given to us, John is drawing from and the the vision is drawing from, um, Matthew 17, 2, but especially Revelation 1, 13 through 16. You remember that when we were looking at the first part, Uh, this first vision of Jesus that he was in the midst of the lampstands, the churches. And he was one like the Son of Man, and he was clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When you catch a verse like that, a representation of Jesus like that, and your mind should go immediately to some other passages of Scripture. For instance, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the glory of God, the the shining like the sun, but it, it doesn't end there. You connect that with some other things that Scripture says, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 where it speaks of the believer, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the brightness of Christ's glory in some way was clothing this woman, whatever or whoever she is. There's that, that connection is given to us as we look at various passages, especially starting in Revelation. And then a second thing is said about her, that the moon was under her feet. I won't develop this too far, um, but someone or something being under the feet of another one, as you work through the Old Testament especially, and even in the New, is always a common biblical picture of someone who has authority. I'll let you look up those references on your own. You can go back and find it. If you've got a concordance, just look up under the feet or feet, and you'll see a bunch of references that show that when somebody is under your feet, they're under your authority. You've conquered them. You're over them. And and her having her feet, uh, having the moon under her feet is simply a sign of some form of cosmic authority, even as we're told in Scripture that the church will rule and reign with Christ. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we have hints. A third thing, there's a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, we fortunately have some place in Scripture we can attach that to. 
We've got a previous place in the Bible that, that gives us a hint as to what may be going on here. It would be in Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. Certainly the first readers would have made this, this connection, the Jewish readers. Um, go back there. Uh, then he, speaking of Joseph in Genesis 37, dreamed another dream. Remember his first one was how he would rule over his brothers? And he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? The eleven stars in that dream were Joseph's brothers. But when you take all 12 together, that's the the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And this picture, this connection of the 12 patriarchs is going to be repeated for us in the book of Revelation. Sometimes, and this is one of the things you've got to do in Revelation, is say, I'm not going to try and interpret this too quickly. Let me read through the book and see where later in the story God himself might open up to us the meaning that's going on there. And here's one of those places. This picture is going to come up again uh, later in the book in chapter 21. And, And in an interesting way, where the New Jerusalem, which is also called the Bride of Christ, picture of the city of God again, comes down out of heaven and it has 12 gates. Interesting thing about those 12 gates is they bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, that's good. But it also has 12 foundations. And those 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of the New Testament. So this, this picturing of kind of the unifying of the two, uh, they come together in some way. The New Testament saints and the Old Testament saints joining together and comprising one city. We'll tease that out later, especially when we get to chapter 21. Right now, we'll just move past it. Uh, Next is that she is pregnant and in the throes of birth pains, and she gave birth to a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And here, we start to get some real concrete information that helps us decide what 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 we're looking at here. Ruling with a rod of iron, as it says in the text is a phrase, in verse 5, is a phrase that's used in at least three other places in Scripture. And in every one of those places, it is always referring to the Messiah. You can look it up in Psalm 2.9, in Revelation 2.27, and in Revelation 19.15. This one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron is clearly the Messiah. So, now we have some sense. This, This woman, whoever she is, whatever she is, She gives birth to the Messiah. He's the one who comes into the world. But her child was caught up to heaven. That, I think, is a pretty clear reference to the ascension of Jesus. There's there's no question this is something that's already happened as he's looking at this vision. As Ephesians 4.9 puts it, in saying that, that he, speaking of Jesus, ascended... What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He had come down from heaven, but he who descended is the one who also 
ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So now we're getting some, some more picture here. Christ ascends to the throne. And what happens then? Well, this woman is fled to the wilderness. Sorry. Fled to the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her and nourished her for 1260 days. We've already seen 1260 days, right? In the previous chapter. We know what's going on there. We've already seen that the 1260 days or the 42 months or the the year, a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. That's the period of time we saw in chapter 11 when the church is persecuted and protected where the temple was measured, where God's city was measured, the temple being his people. And part of it is protected and part of it is trampled underground for 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. A period of tribulation that extends from Jesus' ascension to his return. Uh, That thought is being enlarged on here. We're, We're picking up on a theme that's already been established for us. And she was pursued by the dragon. And now we start to get a little insight into this persecution against the church that it's not simply a cultural persecution, but in fact, it's dragon-fueled. For the first readers, he's saying, don't don't just look at Rome, even though Rome may be persecuting you right now and, and Rome's going to persecute you more. Or Christians in China right now saying, don't just look at the Chinese government and think that, that China is what's persecuting you or, or those who may be in, in countries that have banned Christianity or where Christianity's outwardly um, persecuted. But look beyond that. Something else is afoot. And, and this dragon-fueled persecution is going to get unpacked more as we work through the, both this week and, and next. But... What happens with this woman? Even though she's fled to the wilderness where God has prepared a place for her and nourished her during this time of persecution, even though she's pursued by the dragon and she's enabled to escape to the wilderness. Uh, We could go back. There's a wonderful passage in the Old Testament. I'd love to tie in here, but we just don't have time. And she's enabled to escape to the wilderness or what I've got there, widerness, which is wrong. Um, it should be wilderness. And the serpent tries to overwhelm and to destroy her in some way. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. And then the earth helps her in some way. He tries to destroy her, but she gets some sort of help. But what does that look like? In fact, that's a quote right out of the book of Exodus. But if you don't make that connection, you won't see what's really happening there. And then then we get the final help in the clue. Her offspring, he, this, this pursuit of the enemy, is to attack those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Interesting. So she gives birth both to the Messiah and to those who believe and hold to the gospel. Well, who is she then? How do we take all this stuff, these 12 things, and kind of put them together and come up with a a solid answer of who she is? And I'm going to quote uh, one of the commentators, a couple of commentators that I really like on this. Uh, The first is George uh, George Eldon Ladd, and he says simply, Paul gives us the clue to the meaning of the heavenly woman when he speaks of the Jerusalem which is above 
who is the mother of the people of God on earth. Uh, That's in Galatians 4.26. So he says at the end of the the, the chapter here, she's she's the one who gives birth to those who are, who hold to the testimony of Jesus, but drawing from an image that Paul has penned years earlier in Galatians 4, that the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem which is above, that spiritual city of God, is the mother of, of us. And she was the mother of true Israel in the Old Testament, those, those who were justified by faith like Abraham under the Old Covenant, and of the people of the Messiah in the New Testament. The woman is the ideal church in heaven, and her children are the actual historical people of God on earth. Um, uh, Lad isn't alone in that interpretation. Uh, let, let me go to um, George, er, um, Greg Beale. He says verses 2 through 6 reveal that this woman is a picture of the faithful community which existed both before and after the coming of Christ. I think that's a a perfect way of categorizing it. And again, going back to um, Galatians 4.26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our, our mother. So we get a picture. This is this, this woman is the church. She's crowned with 12 stars, uh, the 12 apostles, the, the, the 12 patriarchs. Um, Jesus comes out of the believing community, if you will, and then is caught up to heaven. And this woman is pursued throughout history by the dragon. And they are those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's the first sign. Then there's the second sign, and this will go much quicker. Because we get an immediate response on this, don't we? 12.9 tells us exactly who this is. The second sign is in Revelation 12.3-4, another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This unambiguously is Satan, because we're told that in verse 9. This great dragon was thrown down, and he is that ancient serpent, drawing from Genesis, where Adam and Eve were tempted, who is called also the devil and Satan, and who is, as we already read in another portion, the deceiver of the whole world. I'm not going to go into the symbolism of the horns and the diadems here for brevity's sake. Horns, as you know, throughout Scripture and apocalyptic literature always speak of power or authority, rulership of some kind. It's interesting that diadems is used here. That's not a mistake. That's a very important word. As believers, when we enter heaven, we're told that we get a crown. Uh, That word in the Greek is stephanon. It's the the wreath that was given to the one in the Olympic Games who won his freedom, who won the race. We're never given diadems. Diadem is, a diadema in the Greek, is always a sign of royalty. And here we see the devil trying to take for himself. And it's always applied to Christ in the Bible. Never to men. And here it is that we see the devil trying to take that royal authority for himself. It's an interesting picture there, but I I can't spend a lot of time on that. So let's, let's just unpack the scene. The scene is a rather grotesque one. 
John is, is what's, what's happening is he's beginning to understand what took place when Jesus, when Jesus came from the perspective of understanding how Satan was at work at that time. That Satan was waiting for the birth of the promised Messiah with an aim, and it's grotesque, to eat him, to destroy him, to devour him, to see that he can't do what he was sent to do. And we, we see that in the gospel accounts, don't we? How as shortly after Jesus was born, how Herod sends out people into the area nearby Jerusalem, Bethlehem, to kill every child two years old and younger because he's trying to kill the Messiah. He doesn't want to give up his throne. Or later, uh, the storm on the sea in Luke 8 when Jesus was asleep in the boat and, and they were afraid they would sink an attempt perhaps of the enemy to kill him. Or the time in John 10 when a, a crowd tried to stone him but he passed out of their way because it wasn't his time yet. All of those attempts were thwarted. And then just, just when Satan thought he had won in the crucifixion by influencing Herod, by influencing the the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and and getting those groups to come together, uh, influencing um, uh, Judas, just when, when the devil thought he had won, that crucifixion in fact turns out to be the very source of his total defeat. Jesus was what? Resurrected and as we see in the vision here, caught up to heaven. Well, what was the result of that? See, things were going on cosmically that you and I weren't privy to that are being revealed to John here that help us understand the world in which we live now, spiritually, so that we understand what's really going on around us outside of what we can see with the physical eyes and hear with the physical ears and and understand with just sensory data well the result of that was in verses 12 in chapter 12 7 through 9 well when he was caught up to heaven war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon apparently the dragon had some some ability to move back and forth and the dragon and his angels fought back but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Wait a minute, this is startling. Something actually happened in the heavenlies when Christ ascended that's, that's of huge importance for you and me. This Satan who was there at some point with his angels, they were, they were thrown out. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. My favorite of the older theologians, William G.T. Shedd, uh, the systematics, he talks at great length about this concept. He says, you know, people are, do you realize that sin, God in his mercy, has prevented sin from pervading the universe? That Satan was cast down to earth. And that's the only place he gets to function anymore. Greatly restricted. He was an angel in heaven and... Here he is, he's bound up on earth. Sin is here, it's not out there. It's here. Satan and his angels were were thrown down to the earth. And and of course, that then helps explain what he was talking about back in verse 4, where a third of the stars were 
swept by the dragon's tail down to earth. Uh, a host of the angels, the fallen angels that went with him, were cast down here as a result of this war. But I want you to notice something that's really important in this passage, which you'll skip over quickly if you don't pay attention. Who threw Satan out of heaven? Not Jesus. An angel. Michael. Why? Because the devil isn't Jesus' peer. He's an angel's peer, but he's just an angel, a fallen angel. Jesus doesn't have an equal. Satan isn't in the position like we have in Star Wars, where there's the light side of the force and the dark side of the force, and they're co-equal. It doesn't happen. Satan isn't God's opposite. He's a holy angel's opposite, but that's it. He's just a finite being who has disobeyed, and yes, he is a spiritual being, lives in a different realm, but good golly, don't make him bigger than he is. Satan was cast out by Michael and his angels. Jesus didn't have to lift a finger because he rose on high to rule and to reign. Now, they were cast down to earth and no longer as an accuser of God's people to God. Because that's, that's what he was doing previously. We're going to tie this with Romans in just a second. He was the one who can no longer accuse the believer to God because Christ has died and atoned for our sin and justifying God as the judge of sin even though he had waited so long before he judged sin in Christ. Matter of fact, he had waited so long, Romans tells us in the passage we just had read, that it looked almost as if he was unjust. It seems then that that throughout the ages, the enemy was was in heaven saying, God, you you have to judge these people. You're holy. You've got to get to them. What does that look like? Well, it looks like the book of Job. That's the picture that's given to us there. And that's what he was doing, but something fundamentally, cosmically has changed in the universe so that the enemy of our souls is no longer in a position to accuse anyone in Christ before the throne of God. That era is past because Christ has died and paid the price and we're free. So many Christians don't realize that there is no enemy who can accuse you before God anymore now that you're in him. Can't happen. Somehow deep down we think he still accuses us and he can get to us at times so that we accuse one another, accuse ourselves, but God doesn't hear that anymore. Let me take you back to that Romans passage just a second. Uh, There Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God, now in, in this present day, the righteousness of God, because Christ has come, has been manifested apart from the law. In what way? How was the righteousness of God revealed to us apart from the law? Because for the Jew, their whole concept was, if you're going to be righteous, you've just got to follow the law. He says, no, 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 something else has happened. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, what we're after is the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction here between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward for us as a, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He, he had let sin go ever since Adam. But in Christ, he dealt with it. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he, he will not violate his own holiness, but has satisfied his wrath and at the same time can give grace and forgiveness to those who believe. Astounding. So John is getting a real picture for us of how much things have changed cosmically. Now, isn't it interesting that so many of us, even as Christians, still at times feel very condemned for our sin? Even though Scripture says there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Because in our minds, Satan can still accuse us before God. There's still some shadowy doubt that we can be brought up on charges when in truth Christ has died and our sin has been fully met in him and no one, as, as Paul will say in Romans, who can bring a charge against God's elect? For it's Christ who's died. So if you're feeling under that condemnation, I've got news for you. You need to plug into what's happened cosmically. That day is past. The believer in Christ can never be brought into that position again. And when the Holy Spirit convicts, he never condemns. He convicts and says, here's sin, but, but turn to Christ. Here's, here's the answer. The enemy condemns, but doesn't turn you to Christ, but to self-condemnation. That's how you know the difference. No. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I know chapter 12 doesn't look like a gospel chapter, but it is. It's all about the gospel. So what did Satan's accusing look like before? As I mentioned already, it looked like Job. But since Christ has paid for our sin and we are justified by his grace, so Satan no longer has that outlet. Now that has an effect. He responds to that. Satan's not happy about this change in things. And robbed of that by his expulsion and the reality that his time is short and that final judgment is coming upon him soon, what does he do? Well, verse 17, he became furious with the woman and, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea. So what is Satan doing now? Well, he's making war on us. On, on the woman, on the church, on the city of God, and, and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If that's you today, you have an enemy. A very real enemy. An angry enemy. He pursues the church, and he pursues it furiously. Now, those attacks most often happen in our minds and in our hearts. And we'll show you that by, by virtue of what he's provided for us to keep us in this. 
Now, just how he does this, we're going to develop in more detail. Chapter 13 does and shows you how this happens even on a, on a global scale and even in terms of, of government and broader persecution. But the essential is in verse 15 where it says that he opened his mouth to overwhelm her, the woman. Now, that's a picture we've seen before, too several times this opening of the mouth the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away we've already seen this picture several times haven't we we saw it with Jesus back at the beginning that when he appears he comes as one with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth it's representative of his word it's not a literal sword and then um, the fire and the smoke and the sulfur that come out of the mouths of the demonic horde in chapter 9. It's the spreading of, of lies. And then again, the two witnesses in chapter 11. Uh, they bring plagues by what they pronounce. It's the, the word of condemnation against sin and of the announcement of the gospel. And so this is what the devil continues to do and what he's always done and why Jesus said he was a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. This is how he does his primary work through his lies. It's why the truth of God's word is so important. It's why John here is getting this revelation, why we are, and saying, wait a minute, you need to understand things from God's perspective. What's really happened? That when Christ ascended, he did something. And, and war happened. And Satan was cast down. And, and he's angry. And in his anger, you and I are being pursued in ways, but subtle ways sometimes. We don't really understand the nature of it. We'll get into that again more next time we're together. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, when I hear the term spiritual warfare, which is what this is all about, it, it conjures up all sorts of mystical and maybe even spooky ideas. Uh, maybe, maybe it's because I read too much science fiction. Maybe it's because I like Doctor Strange. And, and don't you have that idea? You know, he's got a power coming out of his hands. That's how you wage war against the powers of darkness. And, and so you get this idea of chasing demons around with the Bible equivalents of lightsabers and wielding scripture verses like magic spells and and even using Christian symbols like good luck charms, that sort of a thing. You know, if you've got a, a fish on your bumper, then, then nobody can cut you off in traffic, right? Because you're, you're protected. And, and hasn't that crept into the church? Little models and medals of saints and everything to kind of wear and keep around the house or in your car to protect you from, from evil mojo. Although all the people who had St. Christopher on their dashboard for so many years, I don't know what they did when St. Christopher was, was removed and is no longer a saint. I, I guess, I don't know. Did, was there retroactive car accidents? Because they, I, I don't know how that works. But, but we can get into this. We, we can become as superstitious as anybody else with the things of Christ. And we need to stay away from that. Something else is... The reality of spiritual warfare is nowhere near as curious as those things. But because of its subtlety, it's, it's far more insidious and far more dangerous. Uh, 500 years, 500 years, about 500 BCE, Sun Tzu 
penned a famous Chinese war manual called The, the Art of War. I read it this week. It was, it's great fun. It's got some brilliant stuff in it. And, and his key point as you work through his, his various chapters are know your enemy. You've really got to know your enemy if you're going to win a battle. Well, 500 years before Sun Tzu, the, um, David said, hmm, Psalm 144, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. It's God who teaches me how to battle. Not the world, not, not superstition. Now, he is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge who subdues people under me. That's God who teaches us how, and, and, and it's he who is our stronghold. It, it's not wrapping yourself in a, a special Bible. You know, because, because your Bible is bigger than somebody else's doesn't mean it has more power. And you can't put it under your pillow to ward off evil spirits. It doesn't work that way. But we can, we can grow that way with these things. No, by God's grace, Christians are well armed for the true spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in the middle of. But what this portion drives home, and, and we don't want to miss this, is the fact that all Christians need to understand that we are in a battle. We need a battle mentality. And in a, in a culture that virtually worships pleasure and leisure, in fact, how that's bled into the church, so that the goal of our life is to work hard enough and long enough to retire so we can do nothing but have pleasure, which has never happened in any society in history before. But we're, we're built on that model. A war mentality, a battle mentality, just isn't part of how we think. This is a call to that. We've not yet entered heaven. We've not yet gotten into our eternal rest, even though it has dawned. And if we imagine that life now, especially for the Christian, is somehow to be free of conflict and struggle and disregard the reality of a real enemy who hates us, then we're not going to be able to make sense of the hardness of life that sometimes caves in on us. Matter of fact, the first thing we'll do when we endure hardship is start to question, does Jesus really love me? Because if he loved me, would I really be enduring this? Would I really have to struggle with this issue? And of course, the symbol of love isn't whether or not we have ease. The proof of love is his death on Calvary that freed us from the guilt and shame of sin that we might have eternal life with him. The devil opposes believers because he opposes God. And let's face it, there is no more painful way to strike at someone than to attack those the person loves. Every parent here knows that. Let someone attack your child. You would rather stand up and endure anything than someone attack your child, hurt your child. This is exactly the ruthlessness, the, the savagery of Satan who says, you know what, I know I can't kill God, but I can attack the ones he loves most. 
and he doesn't care how badly he hurts us. He doesn't care. There is no mercy in him. That's why sin is, and temptation to sin is always such a lie. Because it promises to give you something when it can only give you death. And if we don't recognize the nature of that battle, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? So whatever it takes for me to be happy, that's exactly what God should give me. So if that means I get back with my childhood sweetheart and leave my wife, so what? See, it's a whole different mindset. The battle's much, much bigger than that. So as I've said already, the devil rages the way he does now because he's been deposed from heaven and because he knows his time is short. But... The great scriptural, spiritual, but that always interjects. God continues to protect and provide for his people even during this appointed period of opposition. Now, beloved, we've got to recognize it. We are in some sort of wilderness even now. That that type of Israel coming out of Egypt and spending 40 years in the desert before it can in the wilderness before she can enter into the promised land that's where we are we've not yet entered the promised land we're still in that desert place there's a final battle to be fought i was just talking with a friend uh, on the web earlier this week because his wife is close to dying still a young woman late 40s and and she's about to cross Jordan and that that final battle is brutal and he's saying how do I how do I stay true to God how do I stop from quaking and and writhing in pain seeing my wife struggle in these final days and the only way he can is by knowing that just on the other side Christ she'll be there soon but it's a battle it's a battle that all of us will face at some point and it's not an easy one those final hours with my mom they were not easy hours we knew where she was going we knew she was going to be with Jesus but she struggled and she quaked and trembled and cried out. And if we don't know where we are in Christ, oh, the enemy will use those moments to crush and destroy and ruin our hope and our trust and our joy in him. We're in a sort of wilderness now, but God's provided nourishment in this wilderness just as he did for Egypt when she left, or for Israel when she left Egypt. We have his word to combat the devil's lies. And we have his spirit to lead us in a different direction than the spirit of the age that seems to, to take everybody up, the, the zeitgeist of this world. And we have his people around us to remind us of his goodness, to remind us of his grace, to, to, to pray for us and to lift one another up and to encourage us and to say, yes, we're, we're in a battle, but we have a promised 
victory at the end of this. The devil creates a false reality and in that false reality he keeps the lost bound in their sin and often torments and keeps the believer paralyzed. And all of it by virtue of false notions of God and sin and our guilt and the need of the cross and eternal life and judgment. He perverts the truths of Scripture to keep the unbeliever from coming to Christ and to keep the believer from fully resting in Christ and trusting in the finished work of Calvary and believing the promises that that when this is over and we're in His presence, there is no struggle, no calamity, no trial on this earth that is worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us in that day. And if we don't keep that mindset, we will succumb. So we have passages like this that do it in such startling pageantry so that it really drives home to our hearts and minds. Satan lies to humankind. He lies to us before we come to Christ to, to, to say we aren't fallen. We aren't in rebellion against God. And so, and so we don't need a redeemer. He lies to us even after we come to Christ that, that sin will somehow satisfy and fill our souls in a way that he hasn't. It's a lie. He lies to us that, that politics and science and education and material well-being will cure all of mankind's ills, and they won't. And he lies that the gospel, if there is one, is a gospel of human effort, of, of personal righteousness that we've accomplished. And he lies that there's no final judgment He lies that Christ isn't who the Bible says he is and and neither are we. We're cosmic accidents, not those created in the image of the living God. And that if God really loved us as believers, life would be smooth and we wouldn't face disease and poverty or trials or loneliness or sorrow or loss or, or disabilities or disappointments, or unfixable circumstances. He lies to us. And we we buy the false reality, and then we stop cold. So how's the saint's victory won? Well, that's in the passage too. He doesn't want to leave us here. He he wants us to see the, the full picture here, and this will only take a minute. Because it's, it's wrapped up in such a, a simple and succinct and wonderful way. How is the saints' victory won? Well, they have conquered him. They've conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. It's two things. First, the victory of the saints in this battle is won by the truth of the gospel that that Christ has redeemed us with his blood and so that we know that our guilt has been fully discharged before God and that so justified by faith we have 
peace with God and the absolute guarantee of all of His promises to come. We stand there. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Not that we use it somehow, but that we trust it fully. What Christ has done is sufficient. And He'll finish the work that He began. That it was all done by Him and given as a completely free gift. That salvation has already been accomplished in the finished work of Christ and we aren't trying somehow to finish that salvation by our own effort. But instead just learning how to live more and more in the fullness of what's already been done by Him. That's where we are. And we live there. That's how we overcome by the blood of the Lamb. We believe what Christ has done in redeeming us by His blood. And all that that implies. But then second, we refuse to abandon the gospel and following Christ regardless the cost. But if I follow Christ, if I stand up for biblical truth and the gospel, people are going to call me a hater. Yes, they will. If I call sin, sin, they're going to say I'm a bigot and intolerant. Yes, they will. They're going to say, I'm backwards and I'm a fool. Yes, they will. They're going to say, I'm out of touch with the world and I'm going to be on the wrong side of history. Yes, that is what they'll say. Absolutely. And? Those are all the things they said to Jesus. when we refuse to abandon the gospel, when we say, no, there is one salvation because there's one mediator between God and men, Jesus Christ the righteous, and that no man comes to the Father but by Him. You intolerant bigot. No, that's just truth. You have to eat food in order to stay alive. You intolerant bigot. You foodist, you. How dare you say such a thing? We can live without food. No, you can't. But when it comes to biblical truth, that's immediately where the argument goes. No, we, and we follow regardless the cost. And for some, the cost is high. For some, the cost is very high. It may be for us. I was just watching again this week the testimony of the former... um, fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia. How, how he had dreamed all his life of becoming a, a fireman and became fire chief in, in Atlanta, Georgia, and then by uh, President Obama tapped him to become kind of manage that for the whole nation. And after he served his term there, he went back to be the fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia. But he had written a book for private Bible study on his own time for men in his church. And in that book, he mentions, uh, just a few paragraphs, he mentions that homosexuality is a sin. And this book is brought to the higher-ups in the city of Atlanta. And they call him on the carpet. And they convene an inquiry. And they determined that in the years that he's been fire chief, uh, almost 20 years aggregately between his two terms, in all those years he has never once 
discriminated against anyone. And in fact, they couldn't, they couldn't find a single instance, and he is the one who had commissioned all of the policies necessary to make sure that everyone in the fire department was treated with equanimity, regardless of race, creed, color, sexual orientation, no matter what. They had not, had not one single incidence of him treating anyone other than with the utmost respect, and he's fired. It cost him in America to simply have written a book for his own men's Bible study privately in his church. Oh, yeah, it's coming. <laughs> and that's how we overcome. By the word of our testimony that what Christ has said is true and not loving our lives even unto death. Saying, I, I have to make that stand. Maybe I need to take the hit for owning my sin and what comes with it even though other people aren't prosecuted for the same thing. It's how we win the war. We know our enemy's real motivations. We know his hatred of God and all of those that are his and his anger over being thrown out of heaven and bound to this earth and his fury over an impending final judgment that's about to take place. He's angry. And we live by the knowledge of our being the recipients of God's eternal, unchangeable, unfathomable love and mercy and grace in sending Jesus for our sins rescuing us from our sin and shame and by living unto him according to his truth as it is in Christ, no matter what the cost. These are the things we cling to. This is what anchors our souls in the darkest, in the scariest, in the most confusing places. And by means of them, we crush the enemy under our feet, just as Jesus said we would. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is an astounding picture that's given to us here. Hard to, uh, to digest in some ways, but really startlingly clear in others. Amazing. Uh, we, we, we probably haven't fully grasped the truth of, of what we're being told here, that something really did take place when Jesus died. Our sins really were atoned for. And that when he ascended into heaven... Things really did take place, and, and we really do have this enemy, but he has been cast out, and, and we can overcome him. You nourish us with your word and provide for us. But I have no doubt, Father, that there are some here today who are living in the fake reality that Satan has painted for them, that they don't really need to come to Christ. They don't really need to acknowledge their sin and their need of a redeemer. They don't really think they're lost and undone and, and stand guilty and condemned before you. And only your spirit can rip that, that falsehood away from their eyes so that they can see the truth. And see the truth of your gospel that all those who come to you by faith casting themselves on your mercy and trusting Christ's death will find forgiveness and new life. 
And Father, some of my brothers and sisters here in Christ have been living in a false reality too. They, they've been lied to by the enemy and they are condemned when Christ has already taken our condemnation. And they're bound by guilt and shame that Jesus already paid for. They're paralyzed thinking that somehow if they're yours, well, everything should be fine. And that they can't trust you with their children, with their jobs, with their lives, with their physical circumstances, with their future. And so instead of resting in Christ, they are caught up constantly in turmoil and and paralyzed. They almost don't want to witness to anybody about the gospel because they don't want other people to be in the same miserable spot they're in right now. And it's because they've been lied to and have believed the lie. And so we ask that you'll, you'll tear that away from their eyes today too. That they might trust Christ afresh. We don't get saved again, but oh, how we get renewed in the reality of the salvation that's already ours. Set them free. Lord, this enemy rages And he hates us because he hates you. And what a glorious place for us to be. Help us to take full advantage of all of your provisions for us in this day and in this age. And to walk with a a courage that defies how the world would think. Father, I ask for, for the saving of souls here this hour. For those who don't know you and for the relief and the the blessing for those who do but have been trapped through this savage warfare of the enemy who doesn't care how badly he torments us. Set your people free today. We ask this in Jesus' name.